Father, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you for the treasure that the word always brings. It always puts a deposit on the inside of us. It always leaves us healthier than when we first came in. As we hear your word, Daddy, it, it really begins to work on our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, and it begins to uh, extract the, the latent things like guilt and shame and fear and condemnation and worry. It begins to reach down in there and give death blows to those kind of things because we cannot walk in freedom if we're always wrestling with those issues of life. That's all they are, just issues of life. So I thank you for this word, Daddy, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Nothing Left to Prove. Now, as those words are kind of settling in your heart this morning, as I thought about them last night, I thought it reminded me of somewhat of a paradox, but a paradox in the sense that religion will say that's not true. But relationship, and after you investigate it, says that is true. So I want to show you what the definition of a paradox actually is. This comes out of the Webster's Dictionary. Here's what it says it is. It says it's a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained typically proves to be well-founded or true. When we look at this message here, nothing left to prove, it's true. If we'll take time to investigate this, if we'll take time to meditate upon what you're actually saying here, you will find this to be absolutely true based upon the Word of God. In other words, a paradox is a statement that sounds kind of far-fetched, but again, generally turns out to be true. In Jeremiah 29, 11, the prophet said, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and do you no harm. Plans that give you a hope and a future. Now, people want to believe that scripture, but you know what gets in the way? I'll tell you what gets in the way. Life gets in the way. We've got that promise from God down in our heart, but life gets in the way and we begin to lose track with that the Father has a plan. The Father has hopes for us. The Father has a future for us. But then comes life. And, and I can't be talking to anybody in here that doesn't understand what I'm saying. So sometimes we begin to question certain things. I don't know if we question God. I think most time we question ourselves. Did I do something that kind of short-circuited what God wanted to do? Oh, friends, you've got to think larger than that. The reason we have chaos in our streets and in the chambers of our governmental institutions is because chaos begins in the heart. The breeding ground for chaos is when a person believes that they have something to prove. That's the breeding ground for chaos. The Bible says even in James, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then it says you want something, but you don't get it. That's what causes fights and quarrels among you. They've not discovered that in Christ alone is where these hopes are found. In Christ alone, it's where these plans are found. In Christ alone, it's where these dreams come true. It's in Christ alone that our future is apprehended. But I love Jeremiah 29, 11, but we often stop right there. But if we come up just two verses to Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, the Lord said, you will seek me and find me 
when you seek me with your whole heart. In other words, what are you saying? If you'll put your mind on me, if, you'll, if I can have your attention just drawn to me, he said, if you'll seek me with your whole heart, he said, guess what? You're going to find me. All we have to do is seek Jesus. And I want you to know, this is where my journey began many years ago, the journey of discovering grace. You know what I said? I said, Lord, I'm always having to prove myself worthy of you. And I felt like I was always kind of, again, short-circuiting what the Father wanted to do in me, the prosperity that he wanted to give me, the plans that he wanted to unfold, the dreams that he wanted to make come true. And the Spirit said to me one day in my living room, he said, I want you to begin to meditate on the very same scriptures that you have been looking at for years after years after years. He said, but I want you to look at them through a different lens. I want you to look at them through the lens of unconditional love. Religion won't teach you that. I want you to look at them through the lens of outrageous generosity. I want you to look at these scriptures through the lens of extravagant grace. Would you like to know what was one of the first revelations I came to was? It was the revelation that I had nothing left to prove. Jesus proved it all. Now, as I've said before, it's a slow drip. It takes a little while for this truth to undo what's already in there, friends. Religion is a stubborn thing. See, what grace does is grace displaces. So long we as a church have went around rebuking everything. I rebuke you, Satan. I rebuke you, sickness. We use that word, and I'm not against that word. That word means to forbid. I get that word. But not understanding the gospel of grace the gospel of Jesus's finished work on the cross who brought salvation, brought healing, brought deliverance, brought joy to his people. As that grace, as that revelation begins to proliferate in our hearts, what it does is it begins to displace the law. It begins to displace religion. It begins to displace these old mindsets that have been set up. Did you know it's a true fact that many people have been saved just by reading the Bible in an effort to prove that the Bible was filled with antique legends and hoaxes and errors and everything else. They set out to say, you know what? I'm going to show you that I'm right. And in the process, they had to stare eventually grace and truth in the eyes. <laughs> it's a wonderful way to get people saved. I'm telling you, just read the Bible, would you? So in the process of investigation, in the process of having to steer grace and truth in the face, people have been saved by reading the Bible. That's Lee Strobel's story, basically. That's what happened to Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. I don't know, was he seeking truth? Or was he just seeking to yank the slack out of Jesus? I don't know. It doesn't necessarily say. It doesn't matter. Whatever his motivations were for coming to Jesus, Nicodemus discovered the Christ, a man who was so absurd and contradictory to everything they were doing, contradictory to their laws, the one that would write a new law on Nicodemus's heart, the law of love, it is finished. The law that said, Nicodemus, you have nothing left to prove because that's all the Pharisees did, constantly proving themselves to be worthy to be in the temple, constantly proving themselves by obeying the law. Nicodemus would discover that God had plans for him that were wrapped by hopes in a future. Little did Nicodemus know, but he would be one of the two men that would wrap Jesus' own body when it was taken from the cross. Do you think he could have seen that that night? 
You think he could have seen that? He came to Jesus for whatever reasons. He's a smart guy, but he didn't understand the most simple things when Jesus said, you know, you got to be born again. He said, how am I going to get back into my mother's womb? I mean, he said, man, you're a teacher of teachers and you don't understand the most simple things. And Jesus tried to explain to him, well, Nicodemus, it's like the wind. Yeah, I understand wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going to. He said, it's that way with the spirit. And Nicodemus would be the man that Jesus would release John 3, 16 to the first one. There was no press release prior to Nicodemus that Jesus was going to roll out that powerful scripture for God so loved the world, Nicodemus. And when Nicodemus heard that, I would imagine he stared a hole through Jesus, thinking there ain't no way God could love the whole world. God loves me. God loves the Pharisees. He couldn't love the whole world. They're rotten sinners. No, Nicodemus, God so loved the world. And then the following verse, he said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Can you imagine being the first person with a loving, precious, gentle Jesus? I don't believe he was probably as loud as I'm being. He probably would have woke up the disciples. But no, he's having a quiet, uninterrupted conversation late at night with Nicodemus. And I believe he brought him close and put his arm around him and said, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus discovered the love of God that night. And you know that because the next time he's found in scriptures, he's defending Jesus. That's John chapter 7. The last time he's found is John 19. He's taken his body off the cross. Something Pharisees didn't do. I've said that before. They didn't touch dead things. They didn't touch dead bodies. That was just beneath them. They thought they defiled themselves. There was just no way he was going to do that. But he didn't see him as a dead man. He saw him as a living man. Because that night, Jesus began to put scriptures. This is why it's so important and why I've said the reason we have so many issues of life going out there is because of fatherlessness in the homes and homes that are void of scripture. Homes where they can't see this amazing picture of the father. Or maybe there are still people that are painting him with a baseball bat in his hand. No, it's not God at all. Nicodemus discovered the love of Christ that night. As Jesus would speak those words in his house, the very scriptures that would leave Nicodemus with a lingering thought. <laughs> if that's true, all right, let me take you for this. If that's true, that means I have nothing left to do. I have nothing left to prove. That's right, Nicodemus, you don't. It's never been about you, Nicodemus. It's always been about me. It's always been about my father. The reason we have a hard time believing that in Christ we have nothing left to prove is because life conditions us to constantly prove our worthiness. Our less than perfect actions beg the questions, am I still worthy of such a great salvation? You see, a man can be the MVP one year and he can be cut from the same team the following year. That's what happened to Christ. One day they hailed him, the next day they nailed him. 
I want us to take those four words, those four thought-provoking words, the words nothing left to prove, and then let's be honest with ourselves. Can we do that for a moment this morning? Just be honest with yourself this morning. In light of what religion has programmed us to think like, let's investigate the seemingly absurd and self-contradictory statement of nothing left to prove. Let me ask you a few questions. If there was something left for you and I to prove, then how would we know when our proving is, was complete? That's a good question, isn't it? You see, if I walk over to my cupboard and I get a drinking glass out of there and I take that glass to the sink and I open up the faucet and hold that glass underneath there long enough, the water as it breaches the rim and begins to cascade down the sides of that glass will tell me that that glass is full. I mean, a blind man would know that. But how does one measure their fullness in Christ? How do you measure that? How do you measure your fullness in Christ? Well, some look for a sign. There are people that constantly look for feelings. Friends, there's no need to look beyond the covenant keeping God's promises. We have his promise. We have his assurance that we have been brought to fullness in Christ. I want you to take a look at this scripture right here. Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. There they are. Oh, I love these scriptures. Look at what it says. It says, for in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you the hope of glory? Well, then this is talking to you. <laughs> look at that. It says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in case you didn't get that, look at what it says next. It says, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Friends, the fullness that is in Christ is the same fullness that is in us. There are not two different fullnesses. These are the same word. The fullness that is in Christ is the fullness that is in you. Now, I'm going to stand on that word. I don't always feel full. There are times where we feel a little dry. We feel like our branches, our limbs are just a little dry, a little crispy. You know what I mean? We're always such feely people. We got to feel stuff. I've come to learn with this walk in Christ. It's not about feelings. It's about his heart. It's about truth. It's about the scriptures. It's about his promises. And his promises are telling me emphatically that we have the fullness of Christ. And someone a while back tell me, well, we don't have the fullness of Christ. I said, have you read the word? He doesn't give us 10% of him and then keep adding to it as we're a good old little old boy, drawing some interest here, you get another percent of me. No, we have the fullness of Christ. Listen to me. You can't add a single drop to full and make it fuller. <laughs> Can you? Isn't that a crazy statement? You can't add a drop to full and make it fuller because if you could, then it wasn't full in the first place. A painter can't add a single paint stroke to a perfect painting and make it more perfect. If he could, then it wasn't perfect in the first place. It might have been labeled as perfect. You might have put that label on it, but it couldn't have been perfect if you added to it or took away from it and made it more perfect. You cannot take something that's perfect. Now, that's a word uh, I'm trying to even learn how to pronounce because I always say perfect. That's my southern voice in me. Perfect. My wife says, you don't pronounce the T. You put a K on the end. Perfect, okay. You can't take perfect. Look, I mean, come on. Say this is perfect. And you're going to add something to perfect? What does that do? 
No, Christ added perfect to you. We were the ones that needed perfect. We add nothing to his finished work. He did it all and he did it right. His blood worked. Perfect means just that, friends. Baking a cake twice doesn't make it a better cake. In fact, it ruins it. Friends, listen, if you try to add to Jesus' finished work for your own salvation, if you try to add to Jesus' finished work because it makes you a better person, what you're saying then essentially is what he did was not enough. What he did was not good enough, was not perfect. No, it was perfect. And it will always remain perfect. Nothing can defile that. Perfect means just that, perfect. It means you are as good as you can possibly be. You cannot add to the finished work of the cross and make it more finished. That was some of the last words that Jesus cried from the cross when he said, hey, I don't think it was just for Papa either listening in. I don't think it was just for the angels. I think it was for the people at the base of the cross like John and his mother. When he says, it is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What was finished? Was it his life? No, it wasn't. He wasn't talking about his life. He was talking about, look, the old covenant has been fulfilled. It has died with me on the cross, essentially. And when I come up out of that grave, I'm going to come up out of that grave in a new covenant, a new covenant called grace. That old covenant is finished, Daddy. They will never relate to you ever again based upon rules and laws and regulations and all these things that you've got to do. They'll relate with you based upon what I've done for them. And I've put perfection in their heart. I've put wholeness in their heart in Jesus' name. If you could add to his finished work and make it more finished, that just would be silly. You would technically say then his work was never finished, right? Essentially, those scriptures in Colossians that we're looking at right now are telling us that we have been brought to fullness. We have been brought to perfection. Is that what they say? You have the fullness of Christ. Well, what is Christ full of? Perfection, holiness. Another way to say what I'm saying there is, if we are really perfect, then we have nothing left to improve, reprove, or prove pertaining to our salvation. If there was something left for you and I to prove, how would we know when we have reached the summit of perfection? See, if you climb a mountain, you know when you're on the top, don't you? When you look around, there's nothing higher than you. You realize, I'm on the summit. I'm I'm as high as I can go. If we're trying to reach the summit of perfection in Christ, how would you know when you're there? What would you have to do? What would you have to add to Jesus' finished work to make you more perfect. More prayer? How many more petitions do you have to give God pertaining to prayer? How many more verses of the Bible do you have to read? More giving? How much more giving? More witnessing? How many more encounters? How many more knocking on doors? More church attendance? How many more services per week? More obedience? Please, friends, you're wearing yourself out. If that is the blueprint to perfection, then it makes it all about us not about Christ. It has always been about Christ. Friends, listen, I lived these. And I don't know for sure if I was trying to just maintain my salvation when I was doing all those things. Now, I heard a preacher say, well, if you're not moving forward, son, that means you're moving backwards. 
And I thought, oh man, where'd you get that from at? It's not true in Christ. If we stand still, he stands still. Remember what I said? What did David say? He said, hey, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, I find you there. Wherever I go, there you are. Why? Because I have the fullness of Christ dwelling on the inside of me. Makes me warm on the inside. Cliffhanging questions, aren't they? You see, the problem with these questions is that everybody would arrive with different answers. That means everyone would end up with a different plan of salvation. True. If you said, wait a minute, you're not reading enough scriptures to stay saved, well then how many more scriptures do I need to read? Well then if that's my blueprint, that must be your blueprint too. Friends, this is where all the religions came from. They couldn't decide that it was finished work, that Jesus finished the work, I had nothing left to prove. And so what they did is they kept adding to it. That's what the Pharisees did too. They kept building fences. They would say, look, we're going to build this fence because we don't want to commit this sin. But then they said, you know what? We better build another fence around that fence just in case we breach that one. Then this one will be our safety net. But you know what? Let's build another fence here. And 613 Jewish laws are in that entire system there. And can you imagine how tiring that would be just to memorize them and be acquainted with them? If there's a single core truth that I have learned since the gospel of grace has been dripping in my heart, it's the humbling reality that I have nothing left to prove. I'm not here to impress you. I'm not here to impress my wife. I'm not here to impress God. I have nothing left to prove. I am here to magnify Christ and his finished work on the cross. That's what I care about. I care about people, yes, but I'm not here to... Magnify me. It's about magnifying Christ. And that is what this gospel of grace has taught me. I don't have anything left to prove. Jesus' perfect blood made us perfect. Jesus' perfect sacrifice made us perfect. Jesus' sinless life made us perfect. We are not made perfect by our prayers. We are not made perfect by our Bible reading. We are not made perfect by obedience. We are not made perfect by witnessing or church attendance or giving. Jesus did it all, and the fullness of the Godhead lives on the inside of you and me, us and we. He has perfectly and completely saved us. I want you to say that in your own heart this morning. Just say it in your own heart. I'm perfectly and completely saved by the blood of Jesus, friends, because that is the gospel. You see why the Apostle Paul was, he was a scrapper, man. Not so much physically, but man, he would stand his ground when people would come in, the Galatians in particular, when they would come in and teach them something different than what he had already put in their heart. He said, listen, this is the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And the Judaizers would come in and they would say, well, you can have your little Jesus. That's fine, but you still need to be baptized. You still need to be circumcised. You still need to hold hands with Moses. You still need to obey the law. And you know what Paul said? He said that they're calling the gospel, but that is not the gospel at all. Friends, you don't believe me. You just go look in Galatians chapter one there and you'll see the apostle Paul was fired up, man. I wasn't hitting anybody. I was giving the devil one right on the chin right there for just a second. That just feels good, man. Listen, you cannot be free apart from truth. You know what truth's job is to do? It is to dispel lies. And every one of us, when we came to Christ, was full of them. 
full of lies, full of ideologies, full of belief systems that, you know, that truth had to come along and dismantle. You know, I've watched people that set up for like fairs and it always amazes me, especially that double Ferris wheel, you know, when it's a big one, they got to take it all apart. So when it's all said and done, they're dismantling this thing. You can't drive down the road with a double Ferris wheel. I mean, the, you're going to take out bridges, right? So what they do, they have to come along. They have a crew that dismantles this thing nuts and bolts and puts it on a truck. See, friends, that's what grace does. It comes along and says, look, I know you've been riding this Ferris wheel, this double Ferris wheel, and I know you've been screaming, having the time of your life, but I'm going to come along and tell you that is not the gospel. It's going to feel like I'm taking your fun away for a moment. It's going to feel like I've done something you're not used to, but I'm telling you, you cannot be free unless truth is dropping into your heart. And what it does, it dismantles lies. It deals with lies. Friends, the opposite of darkness is light. What makes darkness go away? Light. You name one other thing that can make darkness go away. Light. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that believeth in me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We're full of light. We're full of love. We're full of grace and truth. So we are not made perfect by all these things. Jesus did it on the cross. He did it perfectly. He did it completely. He saved us completely, friends. You are saved to the uttermost of your fibers. You are saved. Look at these words in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He said, therefore, he is able to save completely, or literally it means perfectly. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. If you only take one thing away from that is you are saved completely. <laughs> you are saved completely. What I want you to see through the message today is this. Jesus did all the proving and he is the one that does all the approving. We do not make ourselves more full we do not make ourselves more complete we do not make ourselves more perfect we do not make ourselves more finished or even more acceptable in him everything he does in us including our acceptance is the work of his grace we see that truth in ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 look at these words it says to the praise of the glory of his grace Wherein, or it literally means by which, this is how it happened. He hath made us accepted in the beloved. How did we get accepted in the beloved? Of his grace. He's drawn our attention to grace there. The unmerited favor of God. The undeserved, unwarranted, unmerited favor of God. That's grace. He said, it's by that that you have been saved. It's by that that you have been made accepted in the beloved. I want you to make note that it is his grace that made us accepted in the beloved. We do not possess a filthy rags righteousness. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, if we are trusting in our own feelings, if we're trusting in our own emotions and our own obedience as the metric for our righteousness, then our righteousness is going to be like mercury in a thermometer. It's going to be up one moment and down the next. It's going to be like mercury in a barometer. It's going to be all over the place, driven by external temperatures and pressures. 
but not driven by the Spirit. I am not trusting in my feelings. Feelings will lie to you. I'm not trusting in my feelings. I'm not trusting in my emotions. And I'm not even trusting in my human reasoning because there are times when I can reason something out in my mind and I say, man, that has got to be it. That has got to be it. And I find out later I'm so far off at 820. So I'm not trusting in any of these things to establish my heart in grace. I am trusting in Jesus Christ and every one of his promises. I am trusting in Jesus's crucifixion. I am trusting in Jesus' death on the cross. I'm trusting in his burial and in his resurrection. And I am trusting in his promises. His promises are all the proof I need. Listen, I wasn't there, physically speaking, when Jesus was crucified. I can't say that's the reason I believe. I wasn't there physically when Jesus came out of the grave. I can't say that's the reason I believe. I have to trust that somebody loved me so much. I mean, his very actions alone show us that. But that he would be raised from the grave. I'm trusting in that promise and every promise he's spoken. In the Olympics, you're as good as your next medal. In sales, you're as good as your next sale. In Nashville, you're as good as your next billboard hit. In Hollywood, you're as good as your next motion picture. In other words, in the natural You know what people have to do? They have to keep proving themselves worthy of medals and honors and commissions and awards. Why? Because there are people that are always judging you. They're always watching you. But God said, I didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn you. Or I didn't send Jesus in the world to judge you. I sent him in the world to save you. He's not looking at us wanting to judge us. All judgment was placed on the cross on Jesus Christ. He took our judgment. He took our sin. People are always judging us. And what are they judging us on? They're judging us based upon our performance. If you perform well, you pass. If you perform well, we keep you. It's always about performance. Friends, that rhetoric and that philosophy has crippled the walk of the body of Christ. The mindset that we somehow have to make ourselves more acceptable, more worthy, more qualified, is physically exhausting and emotionally debilitating. We have lost touch with Daddy's promise. What was his promise? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and do you no harm. Plans that give you a hope and a future. What kind of hope? I'm talking about a biblical hope. A hope that has great expectations with it good expectations with it. That's the kind of hope. It's not like I said before. It's not a wishing well hope, friends. It is a it is well hope. It is well with your soul, son. See yourself the way I see you. Fullness of Christ living on the inside of you. All my promises of yes and amen just exploding in your heart as you sit with Christ in heavenly places. See yourself that way. That's the way I see it. You will never find rest in a performance-based gospel. I'm talking about an ideology or religion that mandates we must prove that we're worthy of the Father's acceptance. We are made worthy by the working of the Holy Spirit and not by our own hands and not by our own words. We are made worthy and perfect by the Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, 
verses 11 through 15, we find these words. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. You mean the man of God got afraid? He did. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Remember, I know the plans I have for you. I know how to prosper you, Zechariah. I know how to go around the natural things of life. I know how to give you plans that bring a hope in the future. And then he says to Zechariah, he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. What does John mean? It means grace. The name John means grace. Isn't this interesting? The Holy Spirit's doing this work on the inside of Elizabeth. And he said, I'm going to put a little baby in there and you're going to call him Grace because that's what they would have heard. His name in the Greek is Eoannes. Doesn't sound anything like John. Eoannes. It's John for us in English. But behind that Greek word is grace. It's favor. He said, your wife is going to bear you a son and you are to call him John he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He has never to take wine or fermented drink. Now look at these last words. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Isn't that awesome? Friends, when we are born of the Spirit, what the Father does is a creative miracle on the inside of us. He brings life from a barren womb. Grace was planted on the inside of Elizabeth. It is a work of his grace. A miracle that we didn't help with. It's a miracle that Zechariah and Elizabeth couldn't do on their own. They needed grace. And what would grow on the inside of Elizabeth? Grace. Therefore, we have nothing left to prove. They couldn't grab themselves by the tassels on Zechariah's robe and say, look what I did! No, in fact, he was made mute so he couldn't even brag about anything. He couldn't talk about anything. He'd seen nothing. We don't have to seek a nomination for the Most Improved Believer of the Year Award. The Father loves you just the way you are. We do not have to compete for His acceptance. We do not have to sing for His mercy and for His grace. And we do not have to dance across a Broadway stage for His acceptance, for His applause, and for His approval. The Father loves you just exactly the way you are. We have nothing left to prove. By His grace, He has made us accepted in the beloved by grace the cliffhanging questions have lost their grip and have fallen away by grace our crippled and religious limbs are strengthened and encouraged so that we can run with the declaration that we have nothing left to prove jesus did all the proving jesus did all the approving and then he said i know the plans i have for them daddy they're plans that are good plans there are plans to get the harm out of the way. Daddy, help them to think like that. Help them to concentrate on, my father's got a plan for me. It's a wonderful hope. It's a hope that brings a future. Do you know how many believers are sitting at home right now? They're in turmoil. They don't know what to do. 
They're waiting for a feeling. They're waiting for a sign. They're not allowing this truth to drip into their heart. I know the plans. Good plans. Plans that prosper you. Plans that do you no harm. Plans that pack up the Ferris wheel and haul it away. Plans that allow truth to drip in and deal with lies that are in our heart. Friends, we all deal with them. I'm telling you, I think that's what stands in the way of healing for the most part is people cannot believe that they've been good enough for the Father to heal them. Come on, Trudy, you know you, you preach on healing. They can't believe. Do you think the Father wants to heal? Of course he does. Do you think everybody in the prayer line wants to see you healed? Of course they do. You think the ministers praying over you want to see you healed? Yes, of course they do. Then why do some people don't get healed? Because they can't get rid of this mindset. They've not allowed grace and truth to dismantle these ideologies, these terrible things. You've got to, first of all, establish in your heart the truth that he will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. So when I'm not feeling, it doesn't matter. Truth like where two or three are gathered together. There he is in the midst. Truth like whatever you ask for me in my name, I'll do it. You've got to let these truths drip in your heart. And then watch your hope, watch your dream, watch that plan unfold, watch it manifest. <sighs> Years ago, I was giving a ride to a man who said he was an atheist. And we struck up a conversation. He said, you know, I don't believe in God. I said, that doesn't change the fact that he's there. I said, why is that? He said, because I don't believe in anything you can't see. And of course, I pulled out the obvious ones. I said, well, do you believe in gravity? He said, well, yeah, I believe in gravity. I said, you can't see it. Yeah, I know, but I don't believe in anything else you can't see. I said, well, do you believe in wind? He said, yeah, I believe in wind. I can feel it. I said, exactly. He said, but I don't believe in God because there's no proof. And I looked at him and I said, young man, I said, what is it that you would accept as proof? Because the scripture says, if you'll seek me with your whole heart, you're going to find me. I don't know who sowed those kind of things into his life, but I began to minister to him and make him think that there is a God that exists. He said, well, you still haven't given me any proof. I said, look at you. Look at me. I said, have you noticed one thing about a human being? I said, we've got order. You can't get order from chaos. It takes a designer to make this. So tell me, who is this designer? We have order. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. I was working with a guy at Motorola years ago. We were making phones one day. He said the same thing. I don't believe in God. And I told him the same thing. Well, well of course you do. I said, what's the chances, I said, of us taking every part of this phone, putting them in a shoebox and shaking it all up like that and it just being a finished product all come together? <laughs> he just laughed. He said, well, that's impossible. I said, friends, God started with nothing. He said, let there be, let there be the power of the word. And he made dirt. And then the Bible says he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man stood up and worshiped God. Worshipped his creator. Our love for him is not what keeps our Christianity intact. We didn't purchase him, he purchased us. How did he purchase us? With the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 
the spotless Lamb of God. That's how you were purchased. And that's how you were purchased. That's how I was purchased. We were all purchased by the spotless Lamb of God, a Lamb without blemish. God's economy is different than man's economy. God operates through intangible things like faith and grace. Man, on the other hand, likes to work through tangible things like sight and sound and smell and taste and touch. In God's economy, the last is first and the first is last. In God's economy, a man has to die in order to live. In God's economy, when we give, we actually have more than when we don't give. And I don't know that sounds bizarre, but it's true. In God's economy, we win regardless of how many medals, how many platinum records, how many golden globes adorn the hallways of our home. Now, in Hollywood's economy, beauty fades. And the body's imperfections eventually cannot be hidden by the makeup artist. Have you ever noticed that? In God's economy, by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He has made us altogether lovely, altogether holy, and altogether perfect. For how long? Forever! I know, I, I think I looked better when I was younger too. So what? You probably all feel the same way. But in the Father's eyes, we have not aged. Our wrinkles mean nothing. Our blemishes mean nothing. You know, because He sees the fullness of Christ in us. And he said, son, they look like you. And Jesus said, daddy, they do. They look just like me, don't they? Yes, they look just like me, daddy. He doesn't look at Christ and see us differently. He sees us just exactly the way he sees his son. There isn't a human being on this planet that he loves less than he loves his own son. It's a humbling thought. There's not a human being that's ever walked the earth. Some of the most vile, wicked people that the Father loved less. He loves you and me. In Christ, we have been given the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Look at these words here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Look what he says. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as an elaborate hairstyle and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. What is he saying? He's saying, look, don't be drawn to the natural. Look beyond the natural. He says, rather it should be that of your inner self. What's the inner self? It's where Christ lives. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. In God's economy, time cannot erase our inner beauty. In God's economy, sin does not erase eternal life. In God's economy, nothing is wasted. In God's economy, the fragments of shattered hopes and futures are gathered up and put back together, beautiful in all their form. In God's economy, He multiplies grace in the areas of our insufficiencies. He multiplies grace in that area. Where we need it the most, the Bible says there's grace upon grace upon grace. Now I'm going to throw a scripture at you that may seem a little random, but there's nothing random about God. And there's nothing random about His demonstration of love. Look at this next scripture. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Look what it says. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word demonstrates there just means proves. God proved his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you a question. 
who did the proving? <laughs> well, it wasn't man. It was the fullness of the deity that did all the proving. Some of my final scriptures are going to be found in John chapter 13. Once again, in John chapter 13, I think we see an amazing demonstration of Jesus' love. I mean, if there was ever a time that Jesus needed to be the receiver of love rather than the giver, it was on this night. Jesus is just a few hours in front of his crucifixion. If there was ever a time that called for the disciples to prove their love for him, prove their love for the master, this was the time. One last test, if you will. One last final exam, boys. I'm about ready to go away. Isn't that the way you would do it? Isn't that the way I would do it? I want to make sure you're ready for this. I'm going to give you one final test to show you how much you love me. But that was not what was on Jesus' mind. Jesus wouldn't have any of it. No, he chose to prove his love to them even to the very end. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, I love these words. I don't know, they did something from my heart. They just massaged my very heart last night. It brought tears to my eyes when I read those words. He loved them to the end. It means to the very end. Jesus continued to show his proof of his love for his disciples. You see, he wanted them to know that it had never been about them proving their love for him. He wanted them to see that it always had been about his love, the Father's love for them. So what does Jesus do as one last demonstration of love before his ultimate sacrificial demonstration of love on the cross? This is what Jesus does. The next scriptures. The evening meal was in progress. That means the Last Supper, as we call it. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. I'll bet you could have heard a pin drop. As they thought in their mind, what are you doing? We know what you're going to do here. No, you're not going to do that. People do that when we go to their homes that serve us. No, no, Jesus, you're not going to do that. You're not going to wash our feet. After that, he poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered these words. He said, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, it's important to draw your attention to that little word with because it doesn't say you have no part in me. It says you have no part with me. That is the correct interpretation in the Greek. You have no part with me. If he had said you have no part in me, it would have meant Peter lacked salvation, but Peter did not lack salvation. He said you have no part with me means you have no fellowship with me. 
unless I wash your feet. And Peter understood that because right after that, he says, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And I love what Jesus says. Now look at these words. Jesus answered, he that is washed only needs to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. I love this scripture here because as I've made the point before, these sound like two of the same English words, but they are two different Greek words. So they probably didn't do it the best justice for us. When it first says he that is washed, it literally means he that has had an entire bath. And it speaks of regeneration. It speaks of the man. Jesus is teaching a spiritual truth here. He's saying, son, brothers, disciples, Matthew, oh, you guys, look. Look at this, John. Let me leave something with you. If you've been washed, he said, you only need to wash your feet. Basically, he's saying, listen, that first washed is a one-time experience and it never gets repeated. And we see that in the old covenant when Aaron was instituted into the priesthood. He and his sons took a complete bath, but they never took a complete bath like that again. They washed their hands in the brass lever, but that was it. How can you say such a thing like this? Well, I didn't. The scriptures did, but because it's a finished work. That's how it can say it. After Jesus said, when a man has been completely washed, he said, all you need to do is wash the feet, a part of the body, signifying washing away the daily grime we deal with, the daily stuff that bombards our minds, the daily unbelief, the daily stuff that we deal with all the time, the Ferris wheels that we got to keep taking down, the untruths, the lies. He said that part has to keep getting washed away. And how does it get washed away? It gets washed away by truth and grace dripping into your heart. It keeps dismantling these things. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the word today are these. Nothing left to prove is not synonymous with nothing left to do. Don't get me wrong on this now. The grace message is not just take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. As long as we have breath, as long as we have strength, there is much work for the body of Christ to do. But as far as our salvation is concerned, Jesus finished the work. We have been brought to fullness. The Olympics have been canceled. The competitions have ended. You don't have to compete with anybody. It's finished. The filthy rags of self-righteousness have been discarded. One complete bath in the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient. We are forever clean. Now we just wash one another's feet. In the same breath, I'm a huge proponent of resting. I'm a huge proponent of dining with friends and family. I love being merry. I'm a happy guy. But I've also come to the revelation that Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our drink of living water. Jesus is our bread of life. Jesus is our joy unspeakable and full of glory. I want you to see this in your mind's eye for just a moment. See yourself reclining with Jesus at the supper table. Hear his reassuring words as he whispers in your ear, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and do you no harm. Plans that give you a hope 
and a future. This is the work of my grace. Son, you have nothing left to prove. Friends, it has been settled in my spirit, in my soul, that I am loved of the Father. I don't need a daily shot of heavenly adrenaline as a reminder or confirmation of Daddy's love. Jesus' sacrifice, the Father's promises, and the abiding reality of the Holy Spirit living on the inside of me, the hope of glory, is all the evidence, it's all the proof, it's all the demonstration I need. The Father doesn't have to do another single thing more in order to prove His unconditional love for us. He has done it all. The cross was the epic demonstration of the Father's love for all humanity. And because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, believers also have nothing left to prove to God. Our Father God cannot be measured, and He is not holding a measuring stick to you either. He is a God that is without beginning and without end. Furthermore, Jesus' blood was sufficient payment for every sin, past, present, and future, Friends, find rest. There is nothing left to prove. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We honor your word this morning. Daddy, my prayer is that that word would be front and center in everybody's heart. That we're not always so busy working on ourselves to dismantle our own projects that we can wash the feet of our neighbor. But Father, I understand that the body of Christ gets trapped sometimes. They get trapped in a mentality, in a mindset that I'm the one. I'm the one who needs the help. And I get that, Father. Help them to awaken to the reality that the fullness of Christ lives on the inside of them. We can't add a drop to full and make it fuller. We add nothing to the finished work. Jesus did it all or he didn't do it at all. But I'm thanking you, Father, that the promises of God are yes and amen, and it says he did do it all. So, Father, we praise you and we honor you. We thank you that this fight is over with. The lies have been dismantled. They're being torn down right now as truth and grace are taking root and taking place in our hearts. We praise you and we honor you for that. Cause people to see, help them to see with all their hearts. They look just like Jesus. The fullness that's in Christ is the same fullness that's in us. And Daddy, we honor, we honor you today. We thank you for this work. You left nothing undone. You left nothing for us to prove. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You received that word today? I hope you take that to heart. That's more than just a sermon. That is a, an abiding reality. This is how the Lord sees us. Amen.